The Biz News Power Hour. Indeed, you're with the Business Power Hour, and we have got a full hour of power for you coming up. The Guptas may be on their way back to South Africa. Well, there's a step in the right direction. We've got an extradition treaty signed with the UAE. We'll talk to Paul O'Sullivan of Forensics for Justice about that one. Isaac Mofatlani, one of the co-founders of what became the mighty BCX, is back in the tech game. Uh, he is part of a consortium that paid 400 million rand for a company called Cybrin from EOH. We'll be talking to Kanthan Pele, the man who was behind the Capitalist Party of South Africa. One of their views was train young girls to use firearms. Talk to him about the proposed gun legislation. David Melville, a financial advisor, will be telling us how the pricing works on a Krugerrand. And then this being Wednesday, Magnus Haystick is our guest co-host. But before we get into any of that, it's first off the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts is with me in studio. It's been an interesting news day. What's the markets been like, Justin? The JSEL share index was flat, Alec, although that's not really a fair representation with the South African income companies doing really well and the offshore giants, the multinationals, not doing so well. So a good day for South African incorporated businesses. In the currency markets, the rand is weak against all the major currencies to 13 rand 58 to the dollar, 19 rand 21 to the pound. And 16 rand 58 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,893 an ounce. Rent crude is up at $73 a barrel. Interesting story there we'll get to. Kruger Rand will put you back 27,000 rand plus or minus. And Bitcoin is trading at around 480,000 rand per coin. If I have to look at the highlights for the day, great day for the financial sector. Nedbank, Sunlum, APSA, all 4% um, or better. Karoo. Uh, also six six and a half percent better. If I have to look at the losers, Coronation. That's because they went ex dividend. They paid a nice three rand divvy today. Um, or oh, sorry, that'll get paid on Monday. Went ex div today. Transaction capital a bit lower, and some of the miners also feeling a bit of the pain. Interesting day, Alec. If I have to look at the highlights, Sassel posted a very interesting announcement. They've hedged the oil price. Uh, around $60 a barrel the hedge is at. Uh, Brent crude's around 73 now. Very, very interesting, and that's going through all the way through to 2022. So there's obviously a lot of uncertainty there. But that's an interesting one because if Sassel have now hedged their oil out, they're not taking advantage of the $70 price. They're actually stuck in at 60 Exactly. So they also said that they lost about $30 million on their, on their hedges for last year at $43 a, a barrel. So the hedging policy, you can sort of understand where oil went to last year, the little bit, the, the uncertainty. Um, but yeah, where, where the oil price is at, they're still, they're still making good money and, and they, maybe the hedges are there for good reason. Sounds to me like South African Airways. They always used to get it wrong when they tried to hedge. And eventually um, people were saying to them, just let it go. Maybe Sassel is a, a company that makes oil from coal. Why not let it go? I guess they got their reasons. Uh, those financials uh, that went up so strongly today, what's the story there? 
doing unbelievably. I'm not so sure. Maybe the strong rand. Um, no news per se. Um, just a bit of positivity come back, coming back to SA Inc., which is a surprise given that ESCOM's really let us down the last few days. And then another one that caught my eye, Vakile, up 7%. Uh, they're a mall owner in South Africa and Spain. A little bit of a strange composition of properties there. Um, they posted much better than expected results, and it seems that uh, the footfall in, in malls is actually gaining uh, traction a lot faster than many thought originally. Uh, they're also pretty good at their communication. They sent the uh, – I got the financial results from Vukile on a WhatsApp message today. So clearly those guys are – certainly on it. Well, we will be hearing in just a moment from Jackie Cameron with the Flash Briefing. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Take it away, Jackie. South Africa is a step closer to holding the powerful Gupta family to account for corruption and state capture, with the United Arab Emirates confirming that it has ratified an extradition treaty with South Africa. The country is seeking the extradition of three Gupta brothers who are close associates of former President Jacob Zuma. The Gupta brothers are alleged to have used their links with Zuma to steal more than 500 billion rand, or an equivalent of 37 billion US dollars, from the state. Interpol has been asked to help South Africa with the execution of arrest warrants for Atul and Rajesh Gupta and their spouses, along with four other people. The US Treasury in 2019 imposed sanctions on Atul, Ajay and Rajesh Gupta and a fourth businessman who it said were members of a significant corruption network. South Africa will hold municipal elections in October as planned and will institute measures to mitigate against the risk of the coronavirus spreading during the voting process. This is according to the chairman of the nation's independent electoral commission. Zimbabweans living abroad almost doubled the amount of money they sent home this year, bolstering the economy. So says Central Bank Governor John Manguja. Remittances jumped to more than $410 million in the first four months of the year, compared with $222 million a year earlier. Manguja said from the capital Harare that the inflows are Zimbabwe's second biggest source of foreign exchange earnings after revenue from platinum exports. Some U.S. banks awash in deposits are encouraging corporate clients to spend the cash on their businesses or move it elsewhere. That's according to business partner The Wall Street Journal. Bank deposits have continued to surge this year. Between late March and May the 26th, they rose by $411 billion to $17 trillion. That is slower than the pace last spring, but nearly four times the average of the past 20 years. The Wall Street Journal notes that high deposits usually aren't a bad thing for banks as long as they can use the money to make loans. But bank lending has been slow as many companies prefer to borrow money from investors. The industry net interest margin, a key measure of lending profitability, fell to a record low in the first quarter, according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That was your Business Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Paul O'Sullivan from Forensics for Justice joins us now with some big news coming out today that the UAE has ratified an extradition treaty with South Africa. Now, this has been applied for going back how long, Paul? Three years? Uh, I think, yeah, it's perhaps two years at least, maybe three years. You know, time goes so so fast when you're having fun. But um, I think it's it's two or three years that this has been going on. And the relevance here is that that's where the Gupta brothers live. Uh, that's correct. Said to be. <laughs> I see you're a little you're a little hesitant because they might not be there. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, we're getting information now that says they might have moved. 
um, but I haven't been able to confirm it. Why can't you just send in special forces and pull the guys out and bring them out of the country, given the, the crimes that they've committed against South Africa? Why do you have to go through these different processes? Well, I think the last time that happened was a couple of weeks ago when a plane had to land somewhere in um, Eastern Europe and somebody was lifted off the plane. You know, you can't make incursions into other countries' sovereignty. And the United Arab Emirates is, with or without the extradition treaty, I think the um, Interpol red notice would eventually hit the mark. Now, if one looks at the, and I haven't seen any Interpol red notice yet because I don't think it's been actually activated, but if there was an Interpol red notice, I believe it's going to relate to this so-called dairy farm. Um, You know, and I've always said that if you have to go after somebody, go for the low-hanging fruit Mm. and not necessarily everything that they've done because otherwise – People get confused and even courts, you know, and judges, eventually they lose track of what's going on. So go for something that's easy to prove. And it sounds to me like um, this this dairy farm project, for want of a better expression, um, is easy to prove. I think the money found its way out of the country, into the country, out of the country and back into the country to pay for a fancy wedding. And I believe there's a nice little audit trail there, which the... National Prosecuting Authority, a.k.a. ID, have been able to to prove, and that's led to a raft of arrests. And that led to, I think there's been some bail applications this week as well, and one of them was denied. It's that, I think you told us once before, the Al Capone factor. They got him in taxes, not on the many murders that he uh, had Uh, uh, Al Capone was nailed on on tax fraud. I think his bookkeeper became a state witness. Uh, In this case, the uh, emails, the trove of emails, um, commonly referred to as the Gupta leaks, um, several of those emails included emails to KPMG and back again explaining how to fiddle their taxes um, by couching the funds in different ways. But the bottom line is that money left the country and came back again, and that money was supposed to have been used for a dairy project which was going to create work for people that needed jobs. Estina in, in near Freida in the, in the Free State. Uh, but just going back a little bit more to the whole purpose of extradition, why would it take so long? Uh, as you said earlier, something like three years to get uh, Dubai to agree uh, to sign an extradition treaty. And what happens next once this treaty has been signed? Presumably that means you can then at least send people in and go and grab these guys. Well, you can't send people in to go and grab them. You have to then follow the terms of the extradition treaty. And normally the way it works is an arrest warrant is issued in the home country. A copy of the arrest warrant and sufficient documentation to demonstrate that there's a prima facie case would then be supplied to the the country where the individuals are allegedly hiding. And that country would then arrest the person, detain him pending an extradition trial, 
And then at that trial, he would have the right of defense and he would have the right to say, well, you know, all this stuff has been invented or whatever, you know. Um, I believe it's what Mike Lomas is currently doing in the UK in respect of the ESCOM slash Trindadi fraud and corruption case. So it's not as clear cut as it may sound. Now, notwithstanding the fact that there was no extradition treaty, um, Dubai is still a signatory to the United Nations, um, what do they call it, the protocol uh, which combats money laundering and, and whatnot. And that's enforced by Interpol. And um, Dubai is a, or the United Arab Emirates are a signatory and member state of Interpol. And now <clears throat> Interpol is an international police organization which is managed if you like as a un body so the red notices they work in a quite different way and the way it works there is the details are supplied to interpol interpol then publishes the red notice and then any country not just a country with whom you have an extradition treaty can arrest that person and detain them and then notify the country that issued the red notice and they in turn normally have 60 days or 30 days i can't remember what it is to launch an application a formal application to have the person extradited from that country in terms of the interpol slash un rules which dubai is a signatory to so that we we didn't really need to spend a lot of time putting an extradition treaty together now the beauty of extradition treaties is that it does cut away some of the red tape from the UN process or the, the Interpol process um, because it works on more, in terms of the agreement, more good faith than law. So somebody in a senior position in South Africa would have to state under oath and with um, some of the uh, evidence being provided that the person is wanted to go on trial and then he would be extradited. And that process is probably a bit quicker than the Interpol process, but not not a hell of a lot quicker. So at the end of the day, the, the result would be the same. That's an interesting point that you raise there. So in other words, if I understand it correctly, Paul, with the red notices that you can get issued by Interpol, South Africa could have achieved the same ends in the last three years without having to wait for this extradition treaty to go through. Why would not it not have done that? Yeah, why would we not have uh, gone to Interpol for this? And the reason is, before you can apply for extradition through treaty or via red notice, you have to have issued a warrant of arrest in the home country. So they only issued the warrant of arrest in the last couple of weeks. Okay. So they've Up only just made their case, in other words, or got a case that, that is clear. Yeah, there hasn't been a warrant of arrest with, with their name on it. I think that, that uh, makes it a lot clearer. What about Dudizani, though? Isn't he living with the Guptas in Dubai? And we haven't heard much about him. Well, he's certainly been living in the lap of the Guptas for a very long time. Um, as to where he's living right now, who knows? He jets in and out, you know. I mean, this is the man that wants to be king. Um, <laughs> I mean, he managed to convince the media um, to run stories that he was going to be the next president. Uh, so, yeah, he also belongs in jail. Um, 
maybe he'll stop sweet talking and actually end up there eventually. And the fact that uh, they might not be there, what happens then? If the Guptas have found another location, do we then go through the same process of uh, trying to, or the country go through the same process of trying to organize an extradition treaty with St. Nevis and Kitts or wherever they might be? You see, that there's a point I made earlier was, if you know where the person is and the red notice has been issued, you notify the, they call it MLA, um, you notify the law enforcement agency, the Interpol office in that country. Now, we have an Interpol office here in Pretoria, and it's manned by police officers who are members of the South African Police Service. And the only difference between them and the other cops is that they work at that office in Pretoria, which is known as the Interpol office, but they're not technically members of Interpol. The country is the member of Interpol. Now, in order to get a red notice out, you have to issue an arrest warrant in the home country. And then a period of time has to go by. Alternatively, you have to be able to say with a fair degree of accuracy that they are not in that country. Now, I think it's easy to say that the, the the people in question are not in South Africa. So a certificate would be issued that they're not in South Africa. If you can't issue that certificate, you then normally have to wait for, I think, 90 days before they will, before they will publish the red notice. Now, red notices, uh, there are two types. There are public red notices and there are non-public red notices. Now, the difference between the two is the non-public red notices only show up on law enforcement agency platforms, whereas the public red notices, any member of the public anywhere in the world can view them and see them. And some countries, as a rule, just don't do public red notices. For example, the United Kingdom. If you go onto the Interpol website and you look for red notices from the United Kingdom, you won't find any. Um, South Africa does them publicly. Russia does them publicly. It varies from country to country. And then some countries will put some of their red notices in the non-public section because they don't want the um, person that they're seeking to arrest to know that they're looking for them. So it's quite a complex process. But at the end of the day, if they're not in the UAE, wherever they are, they'll either have to stay there and stay hidden, or they're going to get caught. So the, the world will get smaller for them. Isaac Mopotlani is back in the news again. Isaac, uh, last time we spoke, it was BCX uh, that you and your late uh, brother Benjamin uh, were so intimately involved with. How long is it now since uh, you departed? Uh, it's four years ago. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's four years since I, I left the old firm, and um, yeah, so been, been doing interesting stuff on on the side, which has been quite exciting. Still in IT? Um, I've, I saw, look, I've, I've been uh, privileged enough, I think, to to be invited to sit uh, on Exaro board, uh, which um, which for me is completely different to what I was used to in terms of uh, technology. But there is a tech feel to it, even though they're a coal miner, they're doing interesting things. And um, to complete the full circle, I've also just uh, uh, been appointed to the PEPCO uh, board, 
which of course has got the incredible connection pretty much where Ben and I started with Software Connection. So a bit of a full circle, but the rest of the staff has been in FinTech specifically uh, and technology. And I think for me personally, uh, the key was, ne- was never to go and, and build a business that was going to compete with my old business, uh, was to look at niche technologies and software distribution businesses. So pretty much at tech at heart. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're in the news because of an opportunity that became available through EOH. Now, you know EOH better than most people, um, given that it was in the industry where you've, you've cut your teeth and, and grown up in many ways. And, and this business, Cybrin, when I looked at the annual report of EOH, it's a good business. And it's one that I, I think Stephen von Koller told us he didn't want to sell, but he had to because of the debt issues that they were facing. They needed to get money to, to repay that debt. How did you get involved in making this acquisition of a, a, you know, one of those rare companies that don't come around often? Yeah, look, I think that the great part about it is that we, we've had a relationship with Stephen uh, over the years. Um, we had expressed an interest in looking at some of the assets and this particular one um, did come across, and when we looked at it, we were fortunate enough that we were not the only ones looking at it. Uh, we had a, a family business in 1K1V, um, which um, is based out of Denver, Colorado, and run by a South African in, in the form of Hendrik um, Jordan. And um, the base is Stellenbosch in South Africa. So when they approached us, um, they put their name down, would be interested to work closely together with them on this particular asset. We we kind of say, look, it's a no-brainer. It's a digital banking uh, platform, uh, pretty much in that fintech space that we're looking at. And um, it became a, a three-way conversation. Uh, you know, our, ourselves, um, CrossFin, and 1K1V. And uh, interesting enough, we, we've been doing this deal through COVID. So, um, you, know, you know, it's quite always amazing when a deal happens. People always think, oh, my gosh, it just happened two months ago. But we literally be working throughout this transaction, throughout COVID. Um, and, you know, Ross Charles being the advisor to, to EIH, uh, the management team has been a fantastic working relationship. And I think from a culture and the fact that, you know, we, we are tech people who are getting involved with, with a family office in, in a form of 1K and 1V. Uh, kind of made sense. I think we we got a real uh, great culture fit w- with the management team at at, uh, at Sabrin, and it's you know extremely excited. It's 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 one of the jewels. And I, I know Stephen was not keen to to sell it. I think at first he was keen to say maybe we could come in as as, as partial shareholders, and we're not quite keen uh, to do that. Uh, we were quite keen to be the hundred percent shareholder of the business. Uh, how much of a role are you going to be playing at Sabrin? Um, non-executive. Um, uh, I think I only say that I've done my time. Uh, you know, I, I had the privilege of managing seven thousand people in fourteen countries, um, which 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 uh, was quite a blessing that Ben and I uh, could enjoy that. Uh, but they got a very capable and competent management team, and we'll obviously be we'll be helping them with our revenue growth, um, and strategy, governance, uh, and also transformation which is quite key, um, but it's a very solid business w- with solid team. So what exactly does Cybrin do? Well, I mean, to, to, to put it in the layman's language is that we, we, digit, we digitally bought an, uh, a consumer um, in a banking sense. So 
from from doing your know your customer profile, uh, putting you on as a customer, verifying you. Um, so it's an ERP software specifically for for digital banking. That's what it, it does. So uh, the tier two banks who cannot afford uh, some of the heavy stuff of the ERPs of the SAP and Oracle um, look at a sovereign as a solution uh, in that specific area. So, you know, we, we, we do a lot of work with one of the major banks outside South Africa, um, specifically the tier two banks. And the exciting part about it is that with 1K1V being based on the, on the, in the U.S., um, the ability for us to take the technology into the U.S. Because, becomes quite a, a very important part of, of having done the transaction. So, you know, we're looking at this as, as a software that is developed here, uh, with the right IP that can be uh, taken off globally. Uh, it's already in 17 other African countries as we speak. That's such an interesting development and could be very good for the country if you can crack that U.S. market. Absolutely. And that's uh, and I think that's that's a, that's what 1K1V um, offers us. Um, it, it, it's it, 1K1V is, is a collection of family offices, uh, obviously the cores and a couple of them that are involved. And part of it is to take some of these technologies over across to the U.S. What do the management team at Cybrin think about that? Are they uh, because when you put up for sale, it's got to be terribly disruptive on a day-to-day basis. You don't know who your new owners are going to be. It's, it's look. The great part about it is that uh, you know uh, Marius Maria, who's, who's a CEO, uh, we've had a lot of interaction with him. Um, and I think what has also helped, uh, Alec, to be honest, is uh, the BCX background, um, the, the ability. For example, you know, Dean Sparrow, who's, who's currently the CEO and a co-founder at uh, Crossfin, you know, literally is someone that I've known for 28 years. He, he, he came as an article like a software connection days. We bought a business uh, out of UCS from him. He sat on our board. Um, as a non-executive director at BCX, he only got off the board after we sold the business to Telcom. Um, so w- there's a deeper working relationship with the partners around the table and people who've been in this space for a long time. So there is a level of comfort um, uh, in, in terms of what we bring in, I mean, to the ability to bring overseas uh, funding uh, in the form of 1K1V ourselves uh, and working closely with one or two of the institutions um, to acquire the asset has been quite fantastic. They, they're actually quite excited that we, we're getting involved. Did they? I, and, I, I, and I don't think, I think, you know, they, they, they've been a star within the EOH group. And I, I think there's a lot of growth. Uh, as much as Stephen would have loved to have hanged on to asset, but I think with a new, uh, with a new management and new owners uh, being ourselves, I think we, we, we're keen to take the business further. Did they come looking for you? Did they knock on your door or did you have to do the approaches? Uh, they did, they, they ran a process, which, which, uh, and, and that particular process, um, was obviously the meeting of minds. Um, look, and also I think one has been fortunate enough, um, in terms of even Ross Charles, who've been driving the process on behalf of EIH. We have dealt, we've had dealings w- w- with Greg Benjamin before, uh, who, who said Ross Charles. So I think it's also familiarity, people that we've worked with before, either Deloitte, um, and when we put this together, it was compelling. It was extremely compelling that uh, we'll, we'll be the preferred bidder in what we're putting together on the table. I mean, it's 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 you know it's 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 quite interesting for us that you know well, you know you, the B part gets ticked off uh, very quickly. 
uh, with with people who've been in, in the industry. So it's not um, it's a, it's not a far left. We're coming from. Now I've been in the technology industry for over 25 years. Dean has been in the fintech uh, with UCS. One K One V coming with American uh, network. So I think it's all it's got all the right ingredients for why we we we're the choice we're the preferred better in in be able to execute on this transaction. Canton Pele is with us uh, today, and it's an interesting conversation. We haven't uh, been able to pick up on this with you because you should have been in Parliament and you would have been arguing the case uh, in Cape Town. But the Capitalist Party of South Africa, which uh, you headed, which stood in the last election, had a policy on training young women to use firearms. And today, the Institute for Race Relations says that the proposed SA Firearms Control Act is going to make things even worse for women. So that's kind of the context, Kant. Uh, and let's start off with a with a party. What's happened to it? <laughs> Look, the parties. Uh, I think we said at the time that you know we had the intention of just getting ten people into the national parliament. The next national elections are only going to be in three years' time. So. I guess the party is technically on hiatus between now and then. We've got no, well, the 10 of us who were part of that core list, you remember that mm-hmm. we were basically all business people to some extent. And we really have no interest in contesting the municipal election spaces, even though we have lots of party supporters who've expressed an interest in our taking part. But I think the ZACP right now, is pretty much on hiatus until the next election comes around, the next national election. But uh, your point is absolutely spot on. The you know the ideas that we expressed at the time, which were they were nonpartisan ideas, and the entire plan around the ZACP's proposals were to try and put in place proposals that would fix real problems. And instead, what we have right now is a scenario where our government is really doing exactly the opposite thing to what's needed in this space. So just to, uh, be, uh, we, we can talk for a second, uh, in a second, about what we uh, spoke about around training youngsters. But essentially what the Minister of Police has done is you first manufacture an emergency. It's, it's a classic play by governments around the world. And the way in which you manufacture an emergency in this case is you end up not paying the service providers that are essential for actually uh, processing forensic evidence. That um, uh, yeah, It's called the PCAM system. I've forgotten what the acronym actually stands for. But right now we have this absurd situation where there are more than 6 million pieces of forensic evidence connected to, I think, something like 180,000 criminal cases that are sitting there unprocessed. So that's the first emergency that... Uh, uh, that the Minister of Police creates. The second emergency the Minister of Police creates is they have their own fireman permit, permit system, FPS it's called, which is meant to actually track where firearms are. So the SAPS has failed to maintain that. And so we have a situation where in Gauteng alone, there's something like 84,000 SAPS firearms which have been lost or stolen. This is in Gauteng alone. No, so Kanten, minister- seriously, yeah, 84,000, yeah. that sounds, that's it, off it, the charts it, crazy. 
No, 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 84,000. And in terms of the other, the other numbers that we are talking about, since June last year, the figures that um, uh, most of the gun lobbying groups have been tracking, and they've got data to actually back this up, there's something like 500,000 unaccounted for firearms in this country. So the numbers that we, Alec, the, the, the level of incompetence that we have is unreal. So what you have now is instead of trying to actually get to the root of firearm proliferation in this country, which is police corruption, because it's firearms that get handed in. So you you have well-meaning groups like gun-free South Africa who say, let's organize an arms collection, let's organize amnesty, Mm -hmm. and it now the firearms get collected. And guess what happens? Within the police ranks, they then vanish. There's no track and tracing that takes place. And those end up on the streets, and those firearms end up being used by criminals. While people who are using firearms for self-defense to protect themselves, they end up not being able to go through the legal process of obtaining firearms. So hang on. So I don't understand yeah. this. Half a million firearms that have just gone, just vanished. And of course, they are being illegally owned. And that could be some kid who, who uh, decides he's going to hijack a car and he can get a firearm relatively easily with supply and demand. If there's half a million available. Sure. But you say the incompetence uh, and presumably a, a relatively high level of corruption amongst the police, because if Gun Free South Africa gets me to hand in a firearm, I go to the police station, give it in there and it disappears. There's only one likely route that that caused absolutely. it to disappear and that would be a, a, a dirty cop absolutely it ends up in the in the hands of criminals you know um, uh, I've, there's an unconfirmed um, uh, bit of info that i've got and i haven't spoken to gun free south africa about this but i understand that they are looking at a class action suit against the police for exactly that reason so but i guess what i'm trying to say is that we first have to recognize that the problem in terms of Criminal access to firearms in this country is not legal gun owners. So that's the, that's the kind of the broad brushstrokes that we need to take a look at. Now, if we go to what we spoke about as the ZACP at the time, and um, uh, that video is still sitting up on YouTube where we were essentially proposing that primarily girls' school children should be taught the safe use of firearms. And the idea behind teaching them the safe use of firearms is not to provide them with guns, but to actually upskill them so that when they become responsible adults and they are earning a living, they're able to safely acquire and carry firearms for self-protection. Because this ties in with gender-based violence and the incredibly high levels of criminality that we have in our country. I personally think that we need to take this one step further. The solution that we need to be looking at in our country is not to scale back on the use of uh, of firearms. We really need to go full-blown Swiss Army route, which is to train every single South African in the use of firearms. And that pretty much, you uh, you know, in terms of the Swiss Canton system where there's a high level of autonomy and every Swiss home pretty much has guns. But it is one of the countries that has the lowest rates of violence in the world. Because it balances out. Uh, is that the argument? Yeah. That, that uh, well, well, the, no one's going to come and shoot is, me because or come into my home with a firearm because they might get shot? 
Exactly. So the control really needs to be at that level. You need well-trained people who are actually able to take care of themselves. In 2018, the police commissioner, uh, Kesha Zetole, um, told Parliament that the SAPS is not able to fulfill the constitutional mandate of protecting the right to life of individuals. Now we have these firearm uh, amendments that are saying we want to remove the right to self-defense. The main reason why most South Africans want a firearm is for self-defense, to protect themselves and to protect their families. And I say this on the basis, Alec, that Mm. I do not myself carry a firearm. The biggest problem is that, you know, for those of us who consider ourselves liberal in the classic sense, you know, in terms of having a basic respect for, you know, free speech, rights of the individual and all of that type of thing. But when it comes to talking about gun rights, all of us kind of say, whoa, hang on a second, you know, that, that that's kind of scary because there has been a very good narrative that has played itself out around the world that says if you can just simply remove guns from society, we'll have a far less violent society. Now, in fact, we've seen that that's not the case because if we use the UK as an example, and Alec, you spent a number of years up there uh, quite recently, and you know the proliferation of violence in the UK, it's generally knife-based violence, and and it's huge. Mm. Yes, it's huge. And you're always going to have criminals. In a population of 55 million people, which we have in this country right now, if you work on the assumption that in any populace, there's going to be at least 10% of the populace with a propensity for criminality. So that immediately means that there are 5 million people out there who have the propensity to be criminals. So even if you whittle that down to 500,000 criminals, that's a massive number of people walking our streets. And we don't have that many police able to protect us. The numbers just basically don't add up. So the only way you get around it is you train individuals to be able to protect themselves. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to go the full Swiss Army route. We need to train all citizens. We need to license citizens in the use of firearms. Whether they choose to acquire firearms thereafter, that's entirely up to them. Because as I said, I don't carry a firearm myself, but then I can afford armed response, which the majority of people in this country cannot. So I'm saying we need to go full-blown training uh, people. We need to go to the extent of then increasing the availability of civilians as police reservists so that we are then bolstering those numbers in terms of crime prevention. And finally, the most controversial thing that I think that we need to be looking at is that every community needs to elect their own station commander for SAPS because that's the way in which you're actually going to eliminate that corruption. You have a person who is running that police station who is actually accountable to the electorate in that area. So and you're going to see things changing. David Melville joins us now. He is a independent financial advisor who focuses and specializes on gold. And indeed, David, we had a conversation a little while ago with Peter Major where you and Peter Major pointed out that Krugerrand, the, uh, the, the poor cousin in many respects of the investment community, have actually been anything but a poor cousin when it comes to performance over, well, decades. That's true, yeah. And in fact, even a guy called Mike, economist, what's Mike Schussler? Mike Schussler. He did a summary about 18 months ago 
looking at the different asset classes over 50 years. And would you believe it, gold came out tops. It beat the South African equity, it beat offshore equity, bonds, cash in the bank. Every single asset class was beaten. So it was quite amazing that he could pick this up and, and actually bring it to the fore. Well, I guess for South Africans, and that was the point you guys were making, you and Peter, was that for South Africans, gold is not only uh, an investment in the dollar price, but in the RAND's long-term weakening, uh, which translates into into a better return when you buy something like Kruger Rands. But Kruger Rands are not that simple. Uh, you can't just take the RAND uh, gold price and say, well, that's what a Kruger Rand is worth. Uh, you, you corresponded recently and, and explained that there's a whole lot more to it. Yes, I think people typically just look at the spot price of gold. So if, if gold over the news is quoted as being $1,895, very few people to get the calculator out and then multiply it by the Rand dollar exchange, which today is 13 Rand 54, and would give you 25,658. But that's just the spot price of gold. So that's having a lump of raw gold in your hand and nothing's been done with it. And that's where the Rand refinery comes in, which is, in fact, the oldest refinery in the world and also the biggest. Been going since 1921, was owned by the original gold miners. So they all take their gold there and the refinery then melts it and forms it either into gold coins, which are Krugerrands for us, or special medallions for various companies or gold bars when they're shipping it overseas. But to buy Krugerrand... The cost of raising that temperature, the electricity required to, to melt it and purify it and refine it, as well as the SA mint that actually strikes the coin, is a total cost of another 4.5% just to bring it to that finished product of a Krugerrand. And only people who have a license as a licensed dealer can actually go and buy from the Rand refinery. So not anyone can say, I want to buy some of those, thank you. They have to put down a 2 million rand deposit and then prove their credentials to be able to qualify to buy Kruger rands. So that 4.5% is a further 1,155. If we add that to the spot price, that's 26,813. So that's the wholesale price of, of a Kruger rand. But then if, if I'm a shop owner, I have to add something to that to cover my rental, my staff, salaries and running costs. So typically that could range anything from the further 2% to another 4%. And that's the real intrinsic value of a Kruger Rand to bring it from the factory to the individual where you can actually purchase one. So when you buy a Kruger Rand, presumably you are going to sell it at a at least a premium of 4% above what the gold Rand price is because of that cost of the Rand refinery, leaving out for the moment the retail. Yes, yeah, so intrinsically that's its real value. But the sad thing is when a dealer is going to buy it back, he's only going to offer you the spot price. I don't know of anyone who offers more than the spot price. And they say that's part of their way of going towards paying their costs. So dealers really only make money if they can buy enough for the second-hand market. So how's what's the best way then if you're sitting on a pile of Krugerrands, lucky you, uh, to offload them and, and get value? Yes, so most dealers are always happy to buy and they would offer you then the spot price of gold. Um, and I, I know one particular institution, he just runs a big overdraft. So whenever there's a, 
something in the offering, he will then buy as many as he can get. So he prefers to buy from the second-hand market as opposed to buying from the Rand refinery because then he's got a bit more profit margin. Um, but, yeah, so there are people who then are like, well, let's call them Internet dealers, which I am. I don't have a shop. I just operate on the net. So if you want to buy Kruger Rand from me, or sell a Kruger Rand to me, I will offer you the spot price plus 2% to make it sort of more incentive for you. And so that's the best possible price that I've found that someone's willing to pay. Okay, but then how do you deliver? Surely in this crime-ridden society that we live in, to physically transfer uh, those coins is a risk, and that must have a cost attached to it. Yes, indeed. So up to 150000 they will transport it without the security van. I mean, with the security van, but out the, what do we call that? I forget now the word of the reinforced truck, you know, almost as soon as it goes over 150 of them, they want to put it in a, what do we call that uh, delivery truck, which delivers for the bank, the cash? That, yeah, that's mm, the you know what I mean. Yeah, I know it's what like you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah, so the normal one would be reasonable, up to 150,000. You're typically looking at about a 2% insurance plus a petrol charge, and that's reasonable. But as soon as that, that tank comes involved, that's a surcharge of another 7,500. So one should never really be ordering more than 150,000 rands worth at a time, or otherwise split the order. Mm. And but, yeah. do you physically do that? So someone buys, uh, sells you a Kruger Rand online, do you physically then get the coin from them? And if they live in Johannesburg, and I know you live in Cape Town, how does that work? Yeah, so I haven't done any of that. I've really just focused on, on the Western Cape, yeah. And then because I spent 17 good years in East London, I still keep uh, business going there. And often I'll have friends going up or take them up gladly for me, so incognito. And so I try not to, to use too much of the delivery by, by truck and insurance. Dave, David, what about people taking Krugerrands offshore? It used to be quite a popular way when it was expensive. Well, there wasn't the facility uh, to transfer funds abroad. Now it's, it's exchange controls a lot. Uh, a lot more relaxed, but I've heard stories of people emigrating and popping Krugerrand into their petrol tank of their car, for instance, <laughs> or sewing it into uh, the furniture. Does that that kind of thing still happen? Yes, but it shouldn't, um, because you, you know if you're leaving the country for a holiday, you're allowed to take your million rand travel allowance, and you can take it in any form, whether you're taking it in travelers travelers checks or put it on your credit card or in Krugerrand. So it's quite a generous allocation to take a million, if we just call it, let's say, Krugerrand, 30,000 for simple things. You can take 33 Krugerrands with you and go overseas and, and use that as cash or go and swap it for cash at a gold coin exchange. And then if you are leaving the country, you're allowed to take your assets out in any form and you can take all your money in Krugerrands and go and start your business or set yourself up on the other side with them. So it's like taking cash, but it's it's the one that's going to protect you against the devaluing of other currencies. And do people actually do that? Do they, they take a, a, a little safety deposit box with uh, dozens of people around in it? Yeah, so I don't know about that yet, but, but theoretically that's what one could be doing. I know when the Jews had to leave Germany in a hurry at the time of Hitler, those that could take their gold sovereigns were very thrilled, you know, because they couldn't take their property, they couldn't take their share portfolio, probably were denied access to the bank, but the few gold sovereigns that they had were real, the best currency for, for immigrating. 
And just to close off with, are you finding amongst your clients that they're thinking on those grounds, that they want to have a little bit of, of insurance in case uh, they, they need to leave in a hurry? I don't market it on that basis. Um, I say just get an alternative currency that you, you're protecting yourselves against the debasing of currencies. Um, but yeah, clearly anyone who needs to travel in a hurry, it, it couldn't be better to take a few gold coins with you. Uh, to go and swap on the other side, wherever that may be, as an insurance, but also as a as a very liquid currency. Now that's the beauty of Kruger Rands. There's something on the order of 60 million of them that have been produced. We still hold the number one stock in the world for gold coins, and so they're internationally accepted. Well, it's Wednesday, and our guest commentator, Magnus Haystek, is with us. Magnus, the big story of the moment here in South Africa is to do with Eskom and load shedding being moved up from level two to level four. Uh, it isn't going to be a easy week, and it's going to be a cold winter, we were told last night by Sikunati Manshasha uh, from Eskom. I guess it's back to the, 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 the number one priority for the country is to actually get the power story fixed. Well, the power story has been running for many, many years now, Alec, and it just seems to be getting worse. Um, it seems to be on an operational level. Eskom simply cannot supply enough power as and when the consumers will, will need, need it. And, and whether we had load shedding two, four, or six, uh, the, the fact of the matter is it's hugely disruptive to business operations, to factories, to shops, to restaurants. Uh, most kind of businesses work. And they, and they and they need power and predictable power, and we don't have that. So you know, it, it, it also affects business confidence, consumer confidence, and you can talk to any anybody, whether they're in business or not. It is really, really, uh, we're going into a very, very a dark and cold winter, and it's not great for the economy. It's not great for for many other things. It just affects sentiment as well, doesn't it? When you when you have power, you seem to be a little a little happier, a little bit more upbeat. But when the power is off, uh, it casts a pall over the whole country. And I've seen this in, in numerous occasions in interactions with senior people in both politics and in business, that the whole mood seems to change when you go through this difficult period with power. It, no uh, sign of hope, though, in, in the long term, it seems, excepting... Uh, Andre Dorator, the CEO, did say that by September the maintenance would have been done. But I guess you can't really bank anything from Eskom anymore. You, you can't. If you talk to other people like uh, Chris Yelland and Ted Blom and other people, they say the problem is Eskom's fleet is extremely old, hasn't been maintained for many, many years as it should have been. A lot of the capex that should have been spent on, on, on equipment uh, itself was diverted to salaries and contracts and all other kinds of stuff. With the, with the net result today that our fleet is very, very old and they could break and permanently break and, and we could go to stage six or eight very quickly under certain conditions. So the situation is extremely dire in many respects and it does have an impact on investment sentiment. The, the outside world gets these messages from people in South Africa and it, it, it is chasing away foreign investment because they're not sure about power. They don't, they're not sure about the uh, regular supply of power, and they're not sure what the price is going to be. 
So this is a very, very, very uh, a bad economic indicator, and it's very difficult to measure it um, day by day. But if you stand back, there's no question that it's, it's, it's having a major impact on South Africa as a whole. It was interesting, Ted Blom telling us last night that he often gets requests from international investors or potential international investors, and his reaction to them is just forget it, uh, wait until Eskom gets its act together, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. However, we've been seeing on the whole 12J investment or the tax incentive investment, which comes to an end in three weeks' time, that there is a lot of interest in uh, by investors in putting money into solar power or renewable energy uh, companies. Certainly the one that, that we have on our platform uh, is uh, key, uh, key Solar um, KSE uh, is definitely getting a lot of it, attracting a lot of attention. You would think that as the private sector gets more involved, it might fix or support the equilibrium of, of a better power equation in South Africa. You know, the, the, the private sector is sitting with huge amounts of cash. And I'm talking in the trillions of rands on their balance sheets. And they would love to get stuck in and, and invest into the country, including solar power, green power, uh, even even infrastructure. But they need, they need certainty from government and they need to be able to plan for the long term. You cannot have uh, a regulatory environment that is so unpredictable and so difficult to comprehend at times, and that it can change at the whim of a politician. You know, so it's a combination of all those factors. Yes, I know our beloved president gives wonderful speeches. He has a wonderful speech writer. It sounds fantastic, great sound bites on media, but you stand back and you say, where's the beef? Where's the call to action? When do we start with these long uh, promised uh, construction, uh, rollouts, etc., solar power. So it's a combination of these things that are chasing away foreign investment. And we saw that in your discussion with Mike Fisher and Kevin Lings. I think they both referred to the fact that there's absolutely no fixed investment coming through. And in fact, that chart looks extremely dire. Our fixed investment has collapsed in the last three to four years. And that doesn't show up immediately in, in the in the numbers, but it will in terms of, of no new jobs and, and money is just sitting on the sideline waiting for government. Yet government spins a story day after day about uh, how they're going to unleash the economic powers in society and how we're going to turn this economy around. And businessmen are looking at each other and, 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 and they're shaking their heads and they're saying, someone is living on another planet. And it's definitely not the business sector. So when when is it going to change? What will the business community need to spring into action? Well, first of all, you know, again, there was an announcement by government yesterday about making South Africa uh, ease of doing business uh, in the context of making SA an easier place to do business. They keep on saying that. Ebrahim Patel, every time he gets on the stage, keeps on saying he's going to relax regulations in order to make it easier to do business. And then the next day, he introduces more regulation. And whether it's uh, trade and industry, whether it's uh, the Popey Act, whether it is uh, FICA, we're sitting on this side of, 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 of the, the, the line, and I can tell you, 
the regulatory environment has increased fairly dramatically in the last five to ten years that you spend more and more time effort just on complying with regulation and not going to create jobs. So the regulatory environment is just getting worse and worse and worse. And government seems to think it's not a, a, a problem, but the, the, the unemployment figure tells you something. The investment numbers tell you something. And, and, and all the other numbers tell you everything. And government seems to be totally oblivious of these facts that the business community, large and small, have to deal with on a daily basis. I think I might have mentioned this to you before, Alec, and, and I'm quite sure you know it as well. But in our little business, we have 14 laws when last I checked, which if we do not adhere to, can send me or one of my directors to jail for a very, very long time. Fines. And, and, and it is just astonishing that we managed to sail through all of these regulatory uh, conditions in order to run a business, in order to employ people. Magnus, what about the RAND? This is your uh, area of great expertise. You've been telling people for the last 10 years very um, successfully to in- diversify their investments offshore. We've seen the RAND strengthen in the last uh, six months or so very strongly, down to around 13 Rand 50 to the US dollar today and almost 19 Rand to the pound. How are you reading that side? Look, I think the RAND has surprised most people in the way that it has recovered. And I, I don't recall, I mean, yes, the RAND blew out from 14 to 19 and a half last, uh, last year, the three first three months of the year. So the RAND blew out, first of all, just to put the context there. And it has now recovered back to 14 and below 14. So if you take a reading on the RAND um, over that period of time, it has strengthened fairly marginally. But people now are measuring the RAND's performance from the weakest to the strongest and saying, wow, look how the RAND has strengthened. Of course it has strengthened. But it's 100% due to the um, um foreseen um, commodity boom that just kicked in from about October last year, driven by oil, uh, platinum, chrome, and iron ore, which has just boosted the RAND and and, and lit a fire under the RAND. However, the big question is now, is the RAND too, too strong and can it correct? And I'm not sure there's a chance it can, but that depends on what's going to happen with the Federal Reserve whether they can increase interest rates or not. But to bring it back to the South African situation, and you had Richard uh, Salier from Treasury One on your program a night ago or so, saying it's a fantastic time to buy rands, uh, to buy dollars. Because you, if you haven't bought dollars the last 12 to 18 months, now is a fantastic time to get some more offshore exposure. So to, to answer your question, our strategy has not changed for those people who do need offshore exposure. It's now a fantastic time, and, and, and people are buying. We've seen it. People are coming to us and saying, I want more money offshore because that's what they want. They might be immigrating. The kids might be studying overseas. So very hard to predict the RAND. And again, it, 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 it tends to make fools for our forecasters in the, for, in the short term. But it's not only about the RAND. It's also about offshore diversification. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.